So, hello. Um, this is the first um, podcast now that I am doing where from the get-go, uh, from the start, um, I, um, I am committed to um, putting this out because in my first two I was thinking that they were just going to be first drafts and maybe I wasn't going to put those audios actually out. But this one, uh, from the get-go, I am uh, yeah, committed that this, this is going out, this one. Um, at the int- in the introductory podcast, I, at the start of it, for the first minute or two, I was kind of talking in a tone where it was like just a note to myself. You know, and then I kind of got into the flow of it, and uh, then I kind of made the uh, adjustment in my mind in my in terms of my tone of voice that like okay, this is actually maybe going well. I'm gonna put this out, <laughs> but uh, yeah, this one from the start, this is uh, this is this is going out, um, yeah, and uh, this um, this podcast is. It's gonna be about a book that I uh, that I that I reread recently for this podcast. Um, so the book is not that long. It's only one hundred and twenty four pages. Um, like the second podcast that I put out was a review of Shelley's uh, essay, and the, the essay was only like thirty pages. So in the audio. Um, which was literally just an experiment in reviewing the whole, uh, all, all of my notes. So I was talking about all of the notes and all of the underlined uh, passages that I took out from the text. So I was able to do that in about an hour because it, it was only 30 pages um, long. But this book, if I were to go through the whole book page by page and talk about all of the interesting things that were on each page, like I did with the essay, this would just take, I don't know, this could take a very long time, I'm not sure. So this time around, I have had to be a lot more selective. I'm not gonna read out everything, um, all of my all of the underlined parts and all of my notes. Um, I think it would just take too long. Um, I think I wanna keep it to about an hour. So yeah, I'm gonna be much more selective. Um, within this next hour. <laughs> um, yeah, so I have lots of uh, kind of bullet points in front of me because I don't want to read out. There is going to be some quotes from this that uh, I think are really good that I'll just read straight out if I can find them. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, what I'm saying is I just have... So I read the, I reread the whole book and I... Um, I extracted the kind of main um most of the main points of the book i didn't take out everything some like the thing is there's lots of really interesting things in this book and i had to leave loads of those interesting things out so i'm not going to be talking about them but maybe near the end or something i'll give you a little teaser to the kind of things the quality of the kind of things that i did leave out because i guess i mean this book i haven't even introduced it yet but this book it's very interesting and uh I think the information in it is kind of worth knowing. It's kind of like, ooh, eye-opening for me anyway. Um, and where was I going? Um, 
lost my train of thought there now already it's a great start <laughs> um can i regain it when, whenever this used to happen years ago when i was living at living at home uh with my mother for about two years i don't know what, what how long it was whenever i would be explaining to her something and i would lose my train of thought <laughs> i used to say oh look i'm in the station uh, I, I missed my train. I have to wait till the next train comes. <laughs> so yeah, I'm waiting till the next train comes now. But um, what the hell was I talking about? It's so weird the way that happens, isn't it? I was talking about editing the book down. So yeah, it was like I uh, I when I took all of my notes out of the out from the text because I selected the most interesting notes, the main points, and actually this time. Uh, I didn't hand write out all of the underlined phrases that uh, and passages this time I had because I don't know why but this time instead of handwriting it out I used my phone to um to you know the the dictation kind of a uh, what do you, what would you call it capability on the on the on the on a phone you can speak and the phone will 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 type out what you've just said. So I, I use that to take the to take the quotes out of the book and to uh, take my own marginalia out of the book as well. But obviously it doesn't pick up your voice perfectly. So some words will come out wrong. So basically it, it got like 98% maybe of each time I spoke, it got about 98% of it correct. Um, and coincidentally, just as a way of introducing, I guess, this book that I'm going to be speaking about, what I did there was I was dictating. If you imagine back in the Middle Ages, before printing press and all that kind of stuff, um, you would have had it in a, in a monastery or something. Um, and there was like monks learning to be learning about um, how to be a monk and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> um, you would have had the head monk or whatever. I forget what he's called now. Uh, the abbot, actually, I think is what he's called. He would have been um, he would have been reading from a book, maybe slowly, and he would have been reading sentence by sentence. And so he was dictating. And then there was scribes. The other monks were scribes, and they were writing down what he was saying. So that's just a little intro to the kind of um, the book that I'm going to be talking about because it's it's. Uh, I, I'll get back to it. <laughs> um, so anyway, that's how I was taking my notes. Um, so I have, uh, it ended up being like 21 pages of notes and it was like 9,000 words on the computer. So then I printed off all of those and then I reviewed all of the notes and um, I wanted to just kind of see if I can get my head around all of the notes. So basically the whole book was then condensed into just 21 pages, um, the main points of the book anyway. Um, and then I reread I, I re my 21 pages of notes and I uh, was just, yeah, trying to, even when I was reading the earlier pages, I was like, oh yeah, I'd almost forgotten that part. You know, it's funny how quickly you forget it. But I reread the notes once and then I was um, underlining the notes on those 21 pages. And um, yeah, I kind of felt like my head, I kind of had... Um, refreshed the whole book you know just by those 21 pages quickly and then i started to make just bullet points of those 21 pages and coincidentally it ended up being roughly in my first draft of making those notes 
today I made a second draft. In the first draft, it was coincidentally 21 notes as well, um, 21 points to talk about. And in the hope that when I start, when I see one point and I start talking about that, I'll remember things that were connected to that point that I didn't write down, you know? So I hope that's how this is going to work. Um, so anyway, today I, um, I kind of revised the notes again and revised my bullet points yesterday and put them in a better order. So, um, so yes, because I don't want to have this too rigid. It's, it's weird. Like in the preparation for this podcast, I was making audios as I was going along, um, to remind myself about certain things that maybe I want to talk about. And whenever I would find myself reaching to the page to read a quote or something, or if I, if I wanted to talk about a quote, um, it kind of kills the flow or something. So I'm going to keep the reading of the quotes down to a minimum. Um, <clears throat> but once again, like, uh, yeah, the reason I'm just going to say like, like the reason that I'm selecting is just because it would take way too long to talk about the, the all of the really interesting things in this book. Um, if I was trying to communicate all the interesting things in this book, I would be better off just opening up the book, go to page one, start, start an audio recording and just start reading the whole book because the whole book is really interesting, but that's, I can't do that. There might even be copyright issues with that. You know, I don't know if you can just read, make an audio version of a whole book without the publisher's, um, permission and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, so, um, that's kind of the intro, I guess to uh, before I get into this book really um would you call those housekeeping notes would you um anyway so yeah it does kind of bring me to my first bullet point here um which is a quote so I have all of my bullet points and I'm gonna kind of try my best to remember all of the other information around those individual bullet, bullet points and in the um this, this, the research, uh, rereading this book took about, about two weeks. Um, I spent about maybe, you know, three hours each day, not every day, but three hours, most days rereading the, this book. And, um, and I go running, um, most days as well. And when I run, I listen to a podcast, some audio about something. And one of the days I had just great, um, great two really great perfect timing finds within the one podcast um it was a podcast um by a bookshop in paris called shakespeare and company and uh coincidentally that bookshop um it's quite a famous bookshop it it's um it's actually the bookshop that published James Joyce's Ulysses back in 1922, although it's not in the same location now, it's moved down the street. But anyway, it's the same kind of uh, company, same shop. Um, I'm just gonna get a drink here, one second, sorry. Um, anyway, so I was listening to a podcast while I was going running by that shop, and the podcast was a podcast series this year about the 100th anniversary of the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses, and I think I said it already, that shop published Joyce's Ulysses first. 
And so I was listening to that podcast earlier this year. And then just a few days ago, they released the last installment of that podcast series. Um, and in it, they were just kind of reflecting on the whole, um, the whole podcast series itself. And in it, they were talk. It was the podcast was hosted by three people, and they were, um, yeah, it was a really great podcast series. Um, but just the other day, when I was running, they were talking about how when they were when the three of them were talking to each other about the book, that helped them understand the book a lot more because they were able to get their ideas out about it and then bounce their ideas off someone else and then that develops their own thinking. And when they were talking about this, one of the guys, um, Adam, Adam Biles is actually his name, um, he, he, he said that he was reminded of, a, of an essay that someone gave to him some years before. And I better just open this up now on my phone because I have a quote from it here. Uh, let me find the title of it as well. So yeah, so he, um, he said he was reminded of an essay that someone gave to him a few years ago. And the, the essay, it's a short little essay by a German playwright from the 19th century called Henrik von Kleist. And the, the, he was saying that the essay was about um, how speaking will clarify your own thinking on something. He was saying, like, if you want to go write about something, before you write about it, you, you nearly need to go and talk to someone else to clarify your own ideas on it. There's something about actually speaking out loud <laughs> to an imagined audience like I'm doing or, or to an actual person. It doesn't matter who it is. But if you can explain your thoughts to that person, it's going to help clarify everything for you. And so the title of that essay is On the Gradual Construction of Thoughts During Speech. So when I heard this, I was like, wow, that's, that's, I'm so going to look that up because in the first, in my introductory podcast, I said that like, I originally had the idea to start talking out loud and making a recording of it just for myself to listen back to of me talking about my notes from a book because I notice, like, I read a book and I make my notes in the book and then when I finish the book, I put the book away and I start a different book. And then, you know, a few weeks later, even a few days later, if I look at that book again, I'm like, I don't remember most of it. It's, it's mad. Like, you would, you remember some things. But I, I really realize, like, God, if you really want to, some things will just go into your mind straight away first time around and you'll never forget them. That's just, that's definitely true with me. Uh, yeah, that's definitely true. But... A lot of other things you will kind of forget and so I was thinking to myself I had heard this is what I said in the first podcast I had heard that you don't really know something until you can explain it so I started um, these audios as an experiment putting that little phrase into practice to see if it was true um, so yeah so when I heard the guy in the podcast uh, mentioned this I was like that's great that's totally what I was thinking of uh, that was kind of like part of the reason behind why I was making these pod these audios. And then the whole democratizing of information was the reason I, th I thought, of, hmm, why don't I put this out? Um, and so, um, I'll, I'll, uh, which I don't know which to do now. This is, this is the problem with this, with this podcast. There's so many good things. <laughs> I don't know how to order them because I don't know which is more, uh, which is more important to say first. Um, 
I'll get back to it because within that very same podcast, there was another quote. Um, and I'll get back to that in a second, I think. So anyway, so, um, so I looked into this little essay and, um, uh, there's just this great line, uh, this is great passage in it. And, uh, as I'm saying, I have all of my points here and I'm going to talk about them in whatever way comes to me in the moment, right? Because I don't want it to be too rigid, like me just reading out, because I don't know, it gets boring, maybe. Because when you're talking, ideas will come to you or something, you know? So I, I prefer the live uh, flow of just talking from the top of my head based on kind of looking at a page in front of me of, of important points that I want to talk about. So anyway, the quote is, I'll read out two quotes, but... um. um so yeah, in relation to me not being so sure of how this podcast is going to go and actually what facts I'm going to talk about, this quote is so perfect from this essay, which is all about um, how speaking will help you clarify your ideas. So here we go. I believe that at the moment when he opened his mouth, many a great orator did not know what he was going to say. But the conviction that the necessary wealth of ideas would be provided by the circumstances and by the resulting excitement of his mind made him bold enough to pick the opening words at random. <laughs> it's a good quote. It's just like you're, you're like, if you're talking to someone, you're, you're, you're engaged with that person and you got to go with the flow of the conversation. For, with me here, I'm, I've pressed play. I'm... I don't want to stop this audio. I already got through one sketchy moment. <laughs> so I, I got through that. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy. I, did, I was like tempted. Oh, I was like, oh, oh, do I have to start this whole thing over again? But um, I, I don't yet use any kind of editing um, uh, program on a computer. I, I'm, I'm aware of one, but for now, I'm not going to do that. I, want, I like the, I like the, I guess I like this challenge of uh, keeping it live and keeping it going. Can I do it? Uh, I guess that's kind of, uh, that's kind of the stimulus that's, that would kind of make you jump to the occasion, make you kind of uh, stand up, most of all, rise to the occasion. That's what it is. Um, so yeah, so that quote is just so apt in relation to um, me right now having pressed play and I'm now committed to staying live on this recording <laughs> until I get it all done. Uh, and then I'll just read out another quote from this same essay. Um, I'm holding up my phone in my hand here and my hand is going a bit numb now. Where is it? Switch hands. So, so this is the opening two paragraphs from this great find that was mentioned in that podcast while I was going for a run one evening. If there is something you want to know and cannot discover by meditation, then, my dear ingenious friend, I advise you to discuss it with the first acquaintance whom you happen to meet. He need not have a sharp intellect, nor do I mean that you should question him on the subject. No, rather, you yourself should begin by telling it all to him. I can see you opening your eyes wide at this and replying that in former years you were advised never to talk about anything that you do not already understand. In those days, however, you probably spoke with the pretentious purpose of enlightening others. 
I want you to speak with the reasonable purpose of enlightening yourself. And it is possible that each of, the, of these rules of conduct, different as they are, will apply in certain cases. The French says, La petite vient en mangeant. And this maxim holds true when parodied into L'idée vient en parlant. And so that French means appetite comes from eating. And, and then he changed it to the idea comes when speaking. Um, so yeah, this was just a great little, um, um, a little addition to the original quote that started off this whole audio thing for me. So yeah, I'll be looking into this guy even more, but, um, yeah, you know, there's his name, Henrik von Kleist, that is, that's K-L-E-I-S-T, on the gradual construction of thoughts during speech. Yeah. Um, right. So I think now... I can, oh yeah, and I'll just, I'll get back to the other, the other really relevant, um, I'm just going to bring up something else that I'm going to have to talk about next on this, yeah. Um, the other, in that same podcast, um, I couldn't believe it, um, they were, you know, re reflecting on the whole podcast series and they were talking about different people that they had on and um, one of the guests that they had on was a, sp uh, uh, a specialist in Joyce an Irish uh, writer, uh, and he's also a university professor. Um, I can't remember which one it is now, but uh, yeah, he's very well known. Uh, he's called Declan Kybird, and um, he I have one of his books. He's written a good few books, but uh, yeah, as I said, he's a specialist on Joyce, so he's on this podcast. And um, they said that when they had him on, they learned from him that... Democracy is the art of teaching and learning from other people. Um, so when I heard that as well during this same run, I was like, I was like, wow, these two, these first of all the essay by von Kleist, and now this quote about democracy, I was like, wow, this is <laughs> so because those are my those are the two originating uh, ideas, um, the democratization of information. Uh, by learning from other people and from t trying to teach other people, you know, other people teaching you. Not, yeah, it, it, it was just, uh, I, I was just like, wow, that's just crazy, uh, perfect timing. Um, yeah, so that, that was all I wanted to say about that one. Um, one second, drink again now. So yeah, just within the same podcast, um, two great... Uh, references from other sources about my original reasons for doing the podcast series. So I was just like, wow, that's perfect. And then um, the book now that I'm going to be talking about, how long are we done? Are we in here already? Do I have it? I don't know where that is. Um, the book that I'm going to be talking about, I'm in 23 minutes now. Um, it was again so kind of appropriate for my reasons for doing this podcast. Again, like I, so what happened was I was actually reading another short essay. I was thinking that was going to be the next podcast. And then I took a break from it one evening and I was walking around my apartment and I was just looking at uh, my books. And um, out of all the books I have, some I haven't read 
excuse me, I haven't read yet, and others I have read, and others I've partially read. And I just started looking at the ones that I had read, and any ones that I have read, um, if it's a non-fiction book, and if I read it any time over the last 10 years, I have, I would have made good underlinings for the main points on each each page, and I would have had my own marginalia going on in it. I had that kind of system up and running for myself about since about the last 10 years. So I was looking at the books and I was like, I was just thinking, the essay that I was working on, it's an essay once again, like I had read the Shelley one like years ago, I reread it and uh, did the podcast about it. And then the other essay that I was working on, I, that was another essay I'd read also years ago, and I was rereading it, and then I was going to do the podcast on that. Um, and so then I just picked up these other books, put them all out together, see which... And I was just thinking, these are all possible audios waiting for me to do. I just need to re-read them again, and then kind of... Um, then I could talk about them. Um, so... I was looking through them and I picked up one and I just remember it was a great book um, and and then I think I just said I would I would start reading that one and as I was reading it I was like god this is so uh, appropriate um, it's so kind of in tune with kind of my reasons for making the podcast so um, that was another excellent happy coincidence um, I wasn't when I started reading the book I wasn't aware of that but as I said as I went on I was like yeah wow this is really uh, in tune with uh, what this podcast is about because finally now to get to the book um, this book is a book written in the 1980s by uh, a writer called Ivan Illich who was from Austria um, and the, this book from the 1980s is about another book that was written in the 12th century um, and the book in the 12th century is a book all about learning. It's, it's, it's a book about what's the best way to learn. And, uh, I mean, like, I, I, I've been talking a bit about that, like about how I learn and how I take notes and all this kind of stuff. So I was like, yeah, this is, this is great. This is kind of like what I'm talking about. And, um... So it's a book about learning. Um, oh yeah, and I gotta say, so anyone who was writing in the Middle Ages, um, if they were able to write up until up until the twelfth century, if they were able to write, they were without a doubt going to be Christian. They were going to be probably like a monk in a monastery somewhere or in a cathedral or something, um, because not everyone was able to read and write back then you would have to have been connected to a to a to a to the church in some way um it's funny because i've already skipped over some points now <laughs> this is the this is the improv version so we're going to see what's going to happen but um yeah anyway so um Oh yeah, so this book, it's written by a guy who was totally a Christian, totally a believer, because, you know, everyone, not actually everyone, but um, people really believed in Christianity back then, uh, much more so than now. Um, 
So all I'm saying is, if um, if you think this book is going to be all about Christianity and this, this podcast is going to be all about Christianity, that's really not the case at all. This is a book which is about the history of of European civilization, actually, and the social history and things that affected changes in society. Um, so if, yeah, that's, that's all I'm trying to point out here. If you're put off by the word Christianity, don't be, because there's lots of interesting stuff that's in this book that is a part, is, is, is not totally just uh, all about Christianity. And I'll get into that. Um, but I do, I do just want to say that, yeah, some parts of, of the book that I read are, are kind of descriptions uh, relating to this guy's belief in Christianity. Um, but um, if, yeah, all I'm saying is if you're not into religion in any way or anything like that, please don't let that uh, put you off because there's really interesting stuff in this book that isn't relating to, um, to Christianity. But the point I want to make is um, if you are interested in reading and uh, learning, um, as I started to become myself, and I was I wasn't a reader at all like, up until I read like literally one Dan Brown in uh, secondary school um, on my own kind of uh, volition, on my own choice. Uh, obviously, I read in school and stuff, but I wasn't a reader outside of school. And then when I went to college, I started getting into art theory and art history and all that kind of stuff, and I started to open up to the world of literature, all the giants. I was like, ooh, maybe I can get into them, you know. So, so what I'm saying is, if you're someone who's starting that you know, journey, which I totally recommend, <laughs> as I said in one of the other podcasts, how much reading has improved my life. Um, um, it's funny how these little mind blanks <laughs> come. It's funny. Uh, could just edit them out, but nah, I'm going to see if I can go with it. Um, so yeah, what was I talking about? So weird, isn't it? Um, I was talking about... Christianity and um, not letting that put you off because oh yeah I was talking about me being a reader um, and why was I talking about that um, me being a reader <laughs> uh, I wasn't a reader and oh yeah I was saying if you are starting off on your quest in reading that's great totally recommend it and I still can't remember what the hell I was trying to say <laughs> let me think this is, um, Jesus, so weird. I got nothing. I'm going to take a drink. That's going to help. <laughs> How does this happen? So weird. Um, I'm just by myself here. No one can, like, say it was this you were trying to say. I don't have that. Um, so I was talking about... Uh, <laughs> so frustrating. You're probably going to leave the podcast right here. Um... So weird. I'm going to get this. I'm going to get this. So I was talking about... I jumped from two things there. I was talking about the uh, the Christian church. Ah, oh, there we are. Got it. Right. So, yes. Um, if you are someone who is kind of getting into reading and all this kind of stuff, and you so totally should because it's going to change your life in so many fantastic ways, um, as it did mine when I started when I was like 18. Uh, so if you are someone who's trying to get into all this... Um, you should know, if you don't already, that 
all of these books, these classic ancient uh, philosophers and all this kind of stuff, um, <laughs> uh, all this other ancient learning um, um, that our Western civilization is, is founded on, it only survived. Okay, you had the Roman Empire, as I've talked about before briefly. You had the Roman Empire, and when that collapsed, um, the, the, the Germanic tribes that overran... I mean, the Roman Empire was falling apart anyway. It was, it, was, it was had lots of internal problems. It was falling apart anyway. And then the pressure of these migrating Germanic peoples, kind of like sacking Rome and other places, just finished it off. Um, and oh yeah, just coincidentally, it when I was when I was doing a bit of research on this the other day about when exactly did the Roman Empire, the Western Roman Empire, because it continued a bit longer in the Eastern with Byzant, Byzant, the Byzantium, Byzantine Empire, Roman Empire. Um, when exactly did it completely end in the in the West? And it seems to have ended in four hundred and seventy six or four eighty A.D. Um, and it's a coincidence that the the Roman Empire was supposedly founded by Romulus and Remus, two brothers. They kind of there's a story about them raised by wolves, and they ended up founding the founding Rome. And it's a coincidence that the last ruler in Italy, when Germ when one of the Germanic tribes like wiped out the last ruler in Italy, it's a coincidence that the last ruler in Italy was also called. Romulus. I just, that was a coincidence when I came across that. I was like, hmm, opening and closing with the same guy. It's just kind of a coincidence, isn't it? Uh, I think he was Romulus Augustus. I'm not sure of his second name now, but um, just thought that was uh, interesting. Um, so, so when all these um, Germanic peoples uh, overran the what was once Roman territory, they didn't have... Uh, a literate culture. They had an oral culture. They didn't have writing, although they did have they did have runes. You know those. They're like uh, it's like oam. Those kind of runes they carved into stones and different. Uh, I think they use sticks as well to kind of write them out. I I don't know too much about that now, but they didn't have a phonetic alphabet, uh, and maybe only certain, maybe only their priestly caste was able to understand these runes. I'm not so sure about that. But basically, we can say they had an oral culture. They didn't have a uh, a literary culture like the Romans did and the Greeks did. Um. So. So the the Germanic peoples they didn't have any. They didn't, know, they didn't have any respect or interest in, in writing and these book things that they found when they overran their territory. So they probably just burnt them or neglected them. You know, they had no interest in them. Um, now, this period of the very early Dark Ages is fascinating to me. I, I, I may even do an investigation into that for a podcast because I just want, I would really love to see exactly what happened. And I have a few books, I think, that might help me out with that uh, already. But anyway, so we can say that um, the the Germanic peoples took over the new the the Roman old Roman territories, and basically writing and books and all that kind of stuff was just like wiped out. It just was completely. I mean, you need to have a certain amount of stability in your life. You can't be like being pushed around the place by new invading people, you know, it's just not going to work in order to read and write. So, um, as I'm saying, I'd like to look into this more. 
in a different podcast, but right now it's not really my goal to explain all that. So, um, so what I'm saying here is the, if you don't have any interest in the church, I, what I'm saying is if you're interested in starting to learn and, and if you want to have an, a, if you want to engage with the ancient philosophers and all this kind of stuff, you should at least appreciate that it was, let's just say when this deluge, when this flood of non-literary people invaded uh, the Roman territories, let's say that was like a flood wiping out all of the literate culture. And then we'll, let's just say the church was actually like the ark, like Noah's ark of keeping all of those books um, still alive because it was only the church um, in Roman days, you know, anyone who was a kind of a citizen, a full citizen would have been able to read and write. So they all would have had these books and stuff. But when the Germanic tribes came over those territories, it was only the church. The church kind of uh, kept, um, kept these, these books alive. Um, so all I'm saying is if, if you, if you're, if no interest in religion, or if the, the very if the, if the word Christianity like just puts you off or something, uh, I'm just saying you should at least and if you, and if you're interested in reading and learning and all this kind of stuff, you should at least appreciate the fact that if it were not for the church in, uh, well, history can could have gone anyway, couldn't it? But uh, basically, we have to deal with how things went, and um, it was the church that kept all of these things alive. But actually, not all of them because. Um, a lot of the a lot of the books in the ancient world are completely entirely gone. Uh, we we lost them, um, which is a shame, you know. Pro probably because of the Dark Ages, but a, but a large percentage, probably of them, was kept because of of the church, um, and so um, yeah. So that's just a little note I wanted to make about um, the fact that this book that I'm going to be talking about today is all about uh, essentially from a Christian perspective, but um, there's lots of stuff, interesting facts and changes that happen in this story that are not necessarily uh, me preaching about Christianity or something, not at all. You know, uh, it's, it's a really interesting book from the history of technology point of view uh, and just from the, from the, from the perspective of uh, cultural practices, um, and and specifically the how the book, how the manuscript uh, developed in the Middle Ages, um, it is as a result of Christian monks, um, but those the consequences that um, so like Christian monks they kind of uh, they really developed the manuscript and. The achievements that they made, the discoveries that they made, I'm going to get into this in this podcast. Um, the achievements that they uh, made, we have them today and we take them completely for granted. Like now I think I can finally get into this book because I can open up with this uh, after how many minutes? Let me see, probably like ooh, what is it, 30 minutes or something? Nearly 40 minutes. Yeah, so... Um, Can you believe that whenever you pick up a book, if you're, even if you're back in school or anywhere, 
when you pick up a book, open up a book, and you look at the words <laughs> in a sentence, and you start reading them in your mind without saying the, the words out loud, can you believe that that was only developed for humans in the 12th century? Now, that's what this book is going to be talking about. You see, that's nothing got to do with Christianity, really. It's just like, what the... You know, that, and, and there's other kind of like really kind of revelation, revelatory uh, facts in this book like that that are not that are not just talking about Christianity or something. You know what I mean? It's like, I mean, who would have thought that? Like, if you pick up, a, open up a book and you read silently, that was only developed in monasteries in the 12th century. Uh, it did exist in the ancient world, but it, it existed only as a as a complete like bizarre phenomenon that only certain few people did by themselves out of their own curiosity or whatever and other people commented that like one of the famous uh late roman christians um saint augustine there's a note in this book where he he comments in one of his diaries or something like this um he comments on some guy that he knows who does this silent reading thing and he comments like this is the strangest thing i've ever seen but it was it didn't pick up it, it just some few <laughs> a few freaks were doing it and they were looked at like what the hell like you know it just it didn't catch on because back then in greek and roman times whenever someone was reading a book they were reading it out loud it's just what they did um so uh so yeah that's one of the first kind of um i guess as as well i could just uh read the back read the blurb on the back of this book uh, it's yeah just by way of introduction as well um, okay so here we go uh, in a work with profound implications for the electronic age Ivan Illich the author of this book explores how revolutions in technology affect the way we understand and read the text beginning with an extended reflection on the didascalicon of Hugh of St. Victor, I'm going to explain that in a minute, um, Illich celebrates the culture of the book from the 12th century to present. Illich celebrates the culture of the book from the 12th century to present. Hugh's work, at once an encyclopedia and guide to the art of reading, uh, reveals a 12th century revolution as sweeping as that brought about by the invention of the printing press, and equal in mag magnitude only to the changes of the computer age. The transition from reading as a vocal group activity performed in the monastery to reading as predominantly silent, as a predominantly silent activity performed by and for individuals. Uh, so that's just the back of the book. Um, so yeah, this, as it says, this is kind of a celebration uh, of uh, of book culture, of manuscript culture, and actually of manuscript culture up until uh, book culture. I think, um, does the word codex, I think that's an old word for a book. I wonder, is a codex the name for a collection of manuscripts that looked like a book? Maybe that was the old name. Uh, maybe a book then was um, was from the Gutenberg period on. I'm not so sure about that. Um, anyway, so um, 
So that's, okay, so I, where do I start? This is, this is like back to that quote, where do I start? I have all these points in front of me, but where do I actually start? Um, let me have a look at my notes here. Oh yeah, I just, I did have a, a note here saying like, yeah, I'm speaking to an imagined audience, audience here, but uh, yeah, to clarify my own thinking, but I'm doing it in such a way as I'm imagining that I'm talking to a younger version of myself who is kind of in getting who didn't know anything about this kind of stuff, but was kind of thinking it might be interesting. So the way I'm trying to speak is like talking to a younger version of myself um, so that I can maybe reach as broad an audience as, as possible um, because I don't want to be exclusive. You know, I, yeah, it's all about inclusivity. Um, that's what the whole democratizing uh, aspect of this is about, um, yeah. Um, oh yeah, and I just have another point here as well, <laughs> and I'll get into the next notes about the actual book again, but um, these are the housekeeping notes kind of maybe that I'm looking at now again, but I just wanted to say as well that like I, here I am talking now for 44 minutes and on the other podcast as well, but me, I was a terrible, I was a terrible, like, this, I don't know if you can, I don't know if you can even call this public speaking because there's no one here, there's no one looking at me, so I'm... I'm comfortable enough with this. But if I was probably in front of people, that's a different situation. Um, but anyway, in my life, I wasn't very, I wasn't very, uh, I wasn't very good at formulating my own thought or speaking about things up until really, like I remember when I was in college, near the end, about fourth year of college, I kind of got involved with some things that were going on in college where kind of like discussion and stuff was happening a bit more. And I was a total beginner at it. Um, most of us were really um it would kind of depend on your own background if you had any other kind of influence or if you had parents who were kind of like challenging you or making you discuss if you did that was great look at look at you but anyway for me i came to it quite late um so there was a period where i was living at home when i was like 20 um 26 or something for about two years i had to go home and um like I was living at home, so I was with, with my mother. I mentioned this already about the train station thing. And um, um, I was living at home and my mother was retired. So she was she was there every day and I was like at home reading stuff. And then I would go up and talk to her and I would talk to her about, I would kind of like regurgitate <laughs> um, back to her the things that I was learning that day. And it, it really was kind of from then on, I got, because of the the stability of that situation, and just mom being a, a nice listener, um, I really kind of had the occasion, had the opportunity to kind of develop my own ability to uh, explain or to kind of, yeah, think out loud. Um, yeah, so, I mean, pff, look at that. I was like about 26 years of age. I had been trying to read for a good few years before that. So, yeah, there was a certain amount of groundwork done. But, but really... Yeah, I wasn't, what I'm trying to say here is I was not at all a good speaker, at all, public public speaker. I was very weak in that. But um, yeah, just reading and becoming interested in things, I kind of started to want to speak about things. And as I'm saying, I kind of living at home for a while. And uh, But, you know, if you have someone who's willing to listen, a friend or anything, it's the same thing. Um, anyway, so what I'm, yeah, that was just another point I wanted to say. If you hear me talking like this, and if you're not a strong speaker or something, well, now you know, if you, I, I don't consider myself a strong speaker, but I have the aspiration to improve, uh, at least. So, um, so yeah, I'm just saying, like, if you're some 
person who was like I was when I was younger, you know, don't worry about it. <laughs> just put a bit, you know, just uh, stick with it, keep with it. And you, you, who knows, maybe you'll be doing some podcasts one day or standing in front of people doing something. It doesn't matter. But if you want, if you're interested in it, you can improve in it. Um, yeah. So um, I've all, oh yeah, the other note here was talk about the book blurb and give the kind of... Uh, talk about the appreciation of Christianity for safe housing, all the learning. Um, yeah, and so this book then is it's just all about learning. Um, so I think that's really appropriate for my purposes. Um, like the first book, the first line in this book um, is a quote from the first line in the 12th century book that this book is about. And the quote is, of all things to be sought, the first is wisdom. Um, there is a great, great quote, I think it's on page, like, 18, uh, let's see if I can quickly get that, yeah, I got it, not so bad, there's a great, great quote here about, um, just about how reading, um, okay, from the Christian perspective, Adam was in the Garden of Eden, then he ate the apple, and then he was, he was expelled from the Garden of Eden, and he fell into darkness and sin, Right. And um, there was a great quote in this book about how I'll just here it is. All the arts are designed, all the arts like, you know, science and um, mathematics and uh, um, grammar, uh, uh, rhetoric, logic. Uh, and then the, that's the trivium and the quadrivium. I'll get onto that in a minute, maybe. But anyway, so all the arts, like the art of anything, the art of doing anything is is the art of of something useful uh, the, all the arts are designed to work towards this end namely the divine likeness namely that the divine likeness might be restored in us what to us is an ideal to god is nature the more we assimilate to this image the more we taste um yeah it's all about how the how the arts are a way of remedying the fall, the fall out of the Garden of Eden. So, um, so from the Christian perspective, it's all about how reading the Bible in particular was a way of getting to know God and uh, getting back into. It seems to be like getting back into a divine state that we fell from. Um, and and so, if the Bible is the word of God. Um, these people who wanted to get back into the divine state that Adam was in, maybe, are are going to at least start that procedure by reading the few words that that God apparently did give to them uh, as a way of getting back there. Anyway, so this is what um, reading the sacred books, the art of reading the sacred books, this was included in this guy, Hugh of St. Victor in the 12th century. Uh, it, this was included in his... Um, in his, uh, this was a main priority in his uh, book all about education and about how to how to learn. Um, the um, I had something else there to say. This um, yeah, so it's a book all about learning, and it's called the Didascalicon, and the that's like a Latinized version of the Didascalica, which is a Greek word meaning uh, relating to the formation of of young people. Uh, or like training for their introduction into full citizenship. Um, so this is a big point in the book, and it just 
it just it's 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 still so re relevant like if you want to be a participant if you want to be a, a citizen in a participating citizen in any society you have to be informed and one great way of getting informed is to read books yourself um it was just you know before podcasts were invented people either listen to other people or they read books you know um, so this is just a real important point to make that um, reading uh, anyone who wants to get into reading you know do it <laughs> um, um, reading is an absolutely integral part an absolutely com uh, really important part of becoming an informed citizen uh, to participate in democracy um, because if you're not informed if you're not if you haven't developed your own thinking in relation to things and you can develop your, th your thinking in relation to things by reading things, if you haven't done that, you're not going to be so informed and, you know, you, you might not be adding much to the conversation. But if you go and read or, you know, yeah, go and read, you're going to be more informed. Uh, so that's just an early point that I thought was worth mentioning in the book. This book yeah, from the 12th century. Um, he, he emphasizes the importance of reading uh, for being a citizen. Um, there is um, this. There's um, there's different approaches in the in the Middle Ages. There's different approaches to how a monastery or a cathedral was 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 organized, and what the kind of ethos of a of a of a of a um, cathedral or monastery was. And um, this was determined by the particular rule book that um, the, the particular monastery followed. And there was different rule books. Um, one was written by St. Augustine, who was at the end of the, Ro of the Roman Empire. Um, and then when the Roman Empire fell, at the, at the start of the sixth century, there was a guy called Benedict of Nusria, I believe it is, and he wrote a different rule because the rule of St. Augustine was no longer really um, appropriate to the new situation of the fallen post-Roman Empire world. So he wrote a different kind of a rule um, for the real beginning of the Dark Ages, um, which was all about just the, the survival of the monastery. Um, a totally inward-looking uh, rule book for how to organize a monastery, where it was just about the monks getting in touch as best they could with God and learning all of these, uh, reading all of these uh, ancient philosophical texts as well, um, incorporating them into their understanding of Christianity, more or less. Um, but um, um, yeah, so I'll get into that later on more, but I just wanted to point it out now that the this guy Hugh, um, uh, yeah. So the, the 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 a main point of this book is yes, is the transition from from reading aloud into uh, silent reading. But another major transition that's that's discussed in this book is uh, the transition from monastic culture into scholastic culture now what the hell is that basically monastic culture is um is reading purely to gain religious understanding 
Um, and then and then in the 12th century, society is coming a bit more out of the Dark Ages and society is developing a little bit more. And there has been certain efforts made by pe people like Charlemagne in the previous few centuries um, to try and educate more people because Charlemagne realized education is going to be beneficial, it's going to help develop society. Um, so by these gradual efforts um, over the decades and centuries by certain people, um, the, by the time we reach the 12th century, society is in a slightly more developed, more stable maybe uh, kind of uh, condition. And um, so then reading becomes not purely the pursuit of monks, but it becomes also for kind of like uh, almost the average person or people outside of the monastery. Um, and we'll, I'll get into this in a while, but uh, let me see my notes um yeah this book as well like it just it talks a lot about um the effect that um the alphabet it goes back to greek days and and roman times and talks about um the effect that the invention the arrival of the and the ad adoption of the alphabet itself because even we're, we're, I'm saying that the, German, the, the Germanic peoples used to have an oral culture, but even once upon a time, ancient Greece was an oral culture. They didn't have the technology of the alphabet, and the alphabet is the technology. Um, uh, there's a cat here in front of me in this. Um, he just has such funny eyes. <laughs> such funny eyes. He just looks so freaked out by um by sounds outside in the street. <laughs> anyway, um, so um, one sec, drink. I should just put myself on a on a on a drip. I won't have to <laughs> be taking drinks all the time. <laughs> Hook myself up to a a drip. What do you call that thing to just give yourself liquid? Anyway. <laughs> um, so I was talking about um, yes the the adoption of ancient Greece uh, the adoption of the alphabet into ancient Greece had a major effect on um, just um, completely changes everything. For example, in 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 uh, the oral um, past, the oral culture of uh, ancient Greece, they had no word for word they had no word for word um um i'll get into that later on maybe but it's not until they start writing and and they start um kind of like you know when you're saying a sentence can you imagine it was just so much more of a primitive things weren't like as kind of defined like um they were just speaking and they had no words for word it's just a strange thing to us once again like like silent reading now is we totally take it for granted we totally take our you know like the fact that we we know what a word is we <laughs> we take that for granted but these are all achievements that history had to had to uh arrive at slowly um so anyway there's going to be like for example in the roman empire it, it lasted like 650 years or something like that right and it conquered the roman empire spread out from the middle of Italy, and it conquered so many other tribes, so many other peoples who all spoke different languages, right? Even though it conquered all of those, it never, it never translated one of those languages. 
in using their own alphabet. Um, it just never happened. Like Latin was the only language that was used for the phonetic alphabet. Um, and it wasn't until around the 12th century, once again, yeah, this is why the guy picks out this. This is why Ivan Illich seems to pick out this altar because this guy, I, um, Hugh of St. Victor, in his book, The Didascalicon, is kind of standing at like a pivotal moment, a turning point in history. He's kind, he kind of has one foot in the, the, the monastic culture from the fall of the Roman Empire up until the 12th century. And then he kind of has one foot as well in the newer scholastic um, uh, development. And, um, and it's not until the 12th century where for the first time a vernacular is actually written down with the phonetic alphabet because that's the thing about the phonetic alphabet it's with with the phonetic alphabet um you can more or less write down any language you hear if the language has different sounds that are not in western europe you might have to come up with some new symbols but um this is the kind of amazing thing about the phonetic alphabet it's it's um like you know the hieroglyphs of the of the egyptian world um, you need to know um, you need to know how to interpret the 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 images the the phonetic writing system is just completely different anyway that's kind of a whole other story that would be like a whole other podcast but um yeah it's it's um where am I going with this what point should I go back to um Mm -mm -mm -mm. Patent uh, similarity between yeah okay right so um, okay I'll just get back to the whole monastic view of uh, literary uh, of uh, manuscript culture um, it was okay I mean a book like the Book of Kells I mean holy I mean that is some holy s h i t <laughs> I mean like have you ever seen that book I have a book on it. Um, it's just incredible like it, it's just mind-blowing like how it, what I think is amazing about it is that the style of that book and of that that particular style was it called insular um, it's so developed it's so it just like it's just I don't know like where that where did the development of that style come from it's just like boom it's just there fully formed and it's 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 uh, consistent. That's what I mean. It's not just some guy doodling and making it up as he goes along. It's like it's all conceived of this style, and then they just do the book in this style. You know, that's why it's such an amazing work of art. It's not just random doodles. You know, it's like it's a co it's a cohesive, complete style that's 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 carried out from the start to the finish of any one of those books. Uh, it's just amazing. Uh, I mean, so what I'm saying here is these books, um, they were incredibly beautiful. Um, um, like the, I'm just thinking of the Book of Kells and, and specific, specifically. Uh, it's just amazingly beautiful. Um, but, I mean, there's no problems with the artistry of it. But when it comes to the text... The, the way that the text was written was often quite, was often like just, okay, they had very decorative letters sometimes. I mean, the books are just beautiful. There's no problem with, with the beauty of the books. But in terms of 
I mean, the Book of Kells is supposed to be one of the one of the more decorative uh, versions of a sacred book. So there was there was more simplistic, um, less decorated books as well. Um, and those books, sure, they probably did have nice little, you know, like foliage and nice decoration and stuff. But the text would have been kind of like just a big block of text. I mean, they like in the ancient Greek world and Roman world. Again, it's like, can you believe they didn't even have spaces between words? You see, this is what I'm saying. Like, this is, you know, these the things I'm talking about are from uh, written by Christian people, but the things that they developed, we still have them now, and they're, you know, their their achievements are uh, not necessarily connected directly to Christianity. So this is why I'm saying the book is interesting, even if you if you're repulsed by the, the word religion. But um, I'm personally curious about all religions and all mythologies. I just think they're uh, very interesting. So I read them all. I have the Quran. I have I'm I'm interested in Judaism. I have I have um, I think yeah 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 I'm interested in in uh, I have one or two books on Judaism. Um, um yeah and i have the quran and uh, yeah i'm just interested in all mythology anyway that's just my own personal stance on i'm just curious about them all um what was i going to say it's gone again i'm at the train station <laughs> no i'm not i'm on the train i'm on the train uh <laughs> am i um what was i saying tell me there again you're all screaming it now aren't you um damn it this is what happens when you go on tangents what was i talking about um i was talking about it's just completely gone tangents damn you to hell um i was talking about the beauty of the books the beauty of the books yes yes and i was talking about um the achievements of yeah in greece and rome there was no spaces there wasn't even spaces and i was just pointing out that like this is an interesting read even if you're not interested in christianity yes got it um i was on the train um <laughs> um uh, so it wasn't until about the ninth century, I think it was that, so what I'm saying is the monastic manuscripts, absolutely beautiful, but more simplistic in terms of the text the, uh, it, it, because it wasn't actually until, I think it was the, roughly the ninth century, probably some historians laughing here now, <laughs> um, that it was in Ireland, coincidentally, um, where they were teaching new monks. I mean, they would have spoken Irish, these monks, and they were trying to teach them this, this second language of Latin because all of the Bible and all that was written was read in Latin and all of the books were written in Latin as well. Um, as I'm saying, up until the 12th century, all books in Europe were written in Latin. The first vernacular poem, I believe, was St. Francis of Assisi. I'm not sure of what century that was now. That might have been, yeah, the 12th, I'm not sure. But anyway, get back to Ireland in, I think it was the 9th century. It was Irish monasteries where they were trying to teach Irish students to become monks and they were having great difficulty teaching them the words in this Latin language. And so to make it a bit more easy, they, they kind of uh, chopped up the tradition of writing one word after the other with no space and it was irish monks in a in a monastery somewhere <laughs> that had the idea that we're all used to now um that we all take for granted where they had the idea of first putting a space between words so it was very clear where the word starts and the word where the word begins 
I mean, Jesus, how difficult would it have been to read if there was no spaces? Wow. Anyway, um, so these are little achievements that this book is talking about. Um, um, yeah, and so um, this guy, Hugh, in his book about learning in the Didascalicon, he's just talking about, like, you know, have respect for any book that you will find, have respect for it, because if any book was written back then, it was going to be a sacred book or about a sacred book. So you have to appreciate all of these, all of this writing. Uh, he's just talking... Yeah, Hugh, in this book, in the early chapters of this book that I was reading, he was talking about the difficulties sometimes in reading. And, you know, I, I can totally relate. And sometimes you lose your kind of uh, concentration or, you know, so anyone, once again, for anyone who's getting into reading, yes, it is difficult sometimes. Even like I was thinking, you know, like when I was starting to read myself, like if I was reading a paragraph and there was one one word, one new word in that whole paragraph, and if I didn't understand that word, I kind of lost the meaning of the whole paragraph. And then I and then I continue reading on and I'm kind of like, I'm lost. <laughs> but then if I actually take the minute to go and look up that word, I, I then know what that word is. I learned a new word and then I am back on track with the meaning of the paragraph. And then I continue reading. And if I come across another word, I should look that up as well. You just got to take your time, got to do it one word at a time. And then later on, if you come across the same word that you just looked up a while ago, then you can you'd be you'd be all kind of like, oh, I know it. <laughs> you'll have a big swelled head, and no, it's a nice rewarding feeling. Um, and then, yeah, it's encouraging. Anyway, yeah, as I'm saying, I'm just t talking to my 18 year old self who didn't know this stuff. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so in the early monastic uh, manuscripts, whenever there was. A, like the text was just a big block of text uh, and then there was eventually at least a, a, the the invention of part of spaces between words and that helped out a little bit that probably migrated from ireland then to the mainland perhaps um and then uh oh, i wish i had that drip <laughs> so you don't have to hear me drinking all the time um the window is closed in this room where I am um, because there's traffic outside so maybe the air is kind of not going not so good right now I, I personally always love that windows open because I like fresh air anyway I think I'm sensitive to when the air goes stale anyway um, I've been talking a long time here now let me see god I'm probably up to about an hour now. I'm at one hour and 10 minutes mm, I'm getting there I'm getting there maybe it's going to be an hour and 30 minutes we'll see anyway um so what i'm saying is all these little gradual developments happened um and the monastic culture yes it was absolutely beautiful the manuscripts they could be absolutely beautiful but they were much more simplistic in terms of the how they handled the actual text like often you'd be just looking at a big block of text and sometimes they would be kind of ad hoc um um Ad, ad hoc means done without any prior planning you would have you would have the big block of text and then you might have in the particular manuscript that you're reading some other monk might have written some little hand note next to a particular line and yeah it might be helpful or else he might have even written some little note between the lines uh because maybe he's saying oh this line is referring back to this uh, book in the gospel or something you know so it was helpful for some other reader and probably for the for the the if the guy the guy who wrote it himself it was probably helpful for him you know it's just like me doing my marginalia or anyone doing their marginalia it's, it's useful um but it was done in a much 
more uh, ad hoc, as I'm saying. It was like done after the book is done and then this was added in later. And um, so, for example, in the time of Hugh, um, or early man or early medieval manuscript culture, if you were looking, if you had read a book and then you wanted to go back to open up a book because there was a one passage that you really loved and you want to remember that, you're walking back over to this big lump of a book and you have absolutely no idea where that particular passage was. And it's just like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> you know, there was, it was like, if you want to find that again, you nearly have to just read the whole book again, you know. But the difference then with between monastic and scholastic is that there was more, like the space was an achievement, it was a new development, uh, between words, there was lots more little useful things uh, added to the design of the page uh, to make the page more, to make a book more accessible, to make it more easy to read. Um, geez, I'm getting hungry now here. <laughs> anyway, um, like, so in the scholastic period, those little ad hoc marginalia things became less frequent. They might, they, I think they did happen still, but less frequent because those ad hoc commentaries were, were actually, like, like when the text was written down in a really nice way, those commentaries were probably from maybe like an earlier copy of that book. There was someone had their commentaries or whatever. And then when they were rewriting the book, they, they didn't just want to put the commentaries in the same kind of way in the margins. But because it was like those commentaries were already there, so they could handle them differently when they're putting, putting them onto the page of the next copy. Um, so actually, things like footnotes uh, were invented during the scholastic period. Um, I mean, we all have footnotes now in our books, and that was as a result of the kind of the monks and the scribes in the 12th century. Once again, things that we don't know about or just take for granted, you know, but these were all achievements. Um, basically, the 12th century, I mean, in terms of artistic merit, the, the early medieval manuscripts were already astonishing. But in terms of page layout for the text, um, the 12th century was really important. It, it developed... Uh, lots of new devices and also as I was saying if you were looking for a particular passage and you know you couldn't remember where it was the 12th century um, invented indexes at the start of a book or, or even at the start of a chapter so there will be a little summary of the main points of each chapter at the start of a chapter so if you're trying to look for your passage and you know it was about this subject you don't even have to read all of the the whole book you just maybe will just have a quick look through the the chapter indexes and then you might find it that way so all of these um all of these little additions really helped to speed up uh the reading process um like in hugh's time he was all about this was before indexing kind of really took uh caught on so he was more about like, um, oh, just read the whole book. And yes, it's a hard slog, but everything is worth knowing. So just stick with it and keep keep it going. And then like, a, like a, after Hugh, like a century later, um, 
books are all about speed. They're all about like ease of access. Um, and it really speeded up the, the learning uh, process. Um, that's kind of a, a, a good overview, I think, of the difference between monastic and scholastic. But also another another contributing factor to the, the to the advent, the arrival of uh, scholastic um, monastic uh, culture is the Crusades, um, because um, it was because of the Crusades that the writing of Aristotle came back into Europe. Like Aristotle was more or less lost to Europe. Plato was there earlier, I believe, but. Um, but Plato was more or less lost, and it was only when the Christian Crusaders went to the Holy Land and came in contact with uh, Islamic, uh, or maybe even, I think it was through Islamic uh, scholars, that they rediscovered Pla uh, Aristotle. And uh, Aristotle had a kind of a particular... Um, he had... Well, basically, he influenced this dialectical reasoning which is reasoning by argumentation. Uh, so it's like someone says something and then there's an argument against that and then the guy defends his, his position and then there's, it's, it's all about thesis, synthesis, synthesis, and uh, what is it? And then another, what is that word? Thesis, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis. <laughs> synthesis, synthesis, synthesis. If you say that word long enough, it just loses all meaning. Um, like any word does. Um, anyway, you know what I'm trying to pronounce. <laughs> and, um, uh, so anyway, this, um, this influence of Aristotle was a major influence as well for the, for the scholastic uh, approach to manuscript making because this is where the, um, where the kind of, uh, at the introduction of a chapter, there would be a small little kind of a dialectical argument uh, to summarize the arguments that are going to appear in the following book. Um, and, al and also what started happening in the 12th century was compilations of, of similar subjects that were extracted from, uh, like if there's some religious argument um, about something relating to Christianity, um, but there's different writers who have written whole books about many different subjects. And then if there's particular chapters all about um, this particular argument, one writer in the 12th century or something would go to all these books and search out the particular chapters which are referring specifically to this argument. And he would, he would take them, he would like copy them out, and then he would make a book of just that particular argument. And things like that only started happening in the 12th century. And, th and they were called compilations. So, um, so yeah, the whole manuscript culture starts to become, starts to become uh, much more kind of like orderly, and it becomes all about ease of access, and um, yeah, there's just so many um, new kind of devices that are invented in the 12th century that really developed manuscript culture. Um, I think now I can actually go on to my, yeah, the last page of, of my notes. I mean, once again, I have left out so much really, really interesting stuff in this book, but I mean, I think I'm nearly there now. I'd be there 
finish maybe in another 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, not sure. Um, yeah, like for example, another thing that was lost from Roman times up until roughly the 12th century was the ability to, to handwrite really quickly. It just was lost. The art of handwriting was just lost. Um, like, also, I don't know if I mentioned it, I don't think I did. These manuscripts, they, were, they weren't written on paper. Paper didn't come to Europe until late 12th century, I think. Um, paper was invented in China, and then it traveled from China. I think it was invented about roughly, I don't know, 100... Uh, BC in China I think roughly and um, probably wrong there but anyway I know it was invented in China first and then what happened was um, Islamic uh, merchants traders traveled into China trading with China and they discovered this paper stuff and so then that came back into the Islamic world this paper making and then um, the the Islam um, uh, Spain was conquered by uh, Muslims uh, in early um, Middle Ages, so so eventually this paper that had entered into the Islamic world found its way into Spain, and then it eventually found its way from Spain through contact with Christians there, um, found its way up into Paris just in time for the opening of the first university, which was in Paris, I believe. Um, so and that was in the twelfth century. So what I'm saying is, up until the twelfth century, all books were. Um, written on parchment and parchment was was essentially an animal hide that had the skin scraped off it and it was probably treated and it was stretched and all this kind of stuff um but but basically yeah the yeah that's what books were written on um oh yeah and i was just gonna say about the like so they were very you know laborious to make um and they were probably expensive so Whenever a person was, whenever a scribe was taking down a dictation from a dictator in a monastery or something, apparently what they did was they had a board, a wooden board, and they had they had covered the board with wax, and then they had kind of like a like a needle or a pen type thing, and they would when when they were taking the dictation, they didn't do it directly onto the manuscript, on, onto the parchment because it was too risky, you know, because that parchment took a long time to make. So what they would do was they would write it down, they would scrape off the wax and write their thing on the wax because wax was wax was just reusable, and so once they take down the dictation on the wax, then they would carefully, and you know, really. Um, uh, diligently, very carefully, um, translate the wax version of what was taken down into the nice font of the more prepared parchment, you know. Um, so anyway, like with the kind of a rediscovery of, um, of, um, of cursive writing, in, and then with the introduction of paper into the, in, after the 12th century, um, then when students were in universities, um, yeah, as I'm saying, the first university was roughly 12th century. So then what happened was the, the, the teacher would be able to say what, what he wants the students to take down. And they were already writing in cursive directly onto paper. Um, so it's just um, s such big changes happened. And um, oh yeah, there was, a, there was a funny scandal as well mentioned in the book where apparently 
the, this is how the students learned. They, they first of all wrote down the book by, by transcribing it. They, were, they would write the book. The teacher would, would, would read his copy and then all the students would take it down. And apparently at the end of the year or when the students no longer needed that book, the teacher was getting those books back and selling them and making a profit. And apparently that caused a bit of a scandal. But anyway, um, so yeah, I'm kind of nearly there now. As I'm saying, I left out so much stuff. I didn't even get to any of the quotes Oh yeah, there was one I have to mention. Yeah, I mentioned that. But um, uh, there was um, there was an interesting point. Now I'm not going to be fleshing it out too well here, but it's like written documents apparently became more legally uh, powerful than the spoken word as well. And there's another book where I'm probably going to get into that, so I'll just leave that at that. But um, I'm just, when I was when I was making that note, I just looked at the word described, and I was just thinking that word described that we all use. That's that's like if somebody something is described. That's obviously coming from um, an old. It obviously means that like the description is something that a scribe wrote down. Because D scribe in French, D means from, um, and then scribe. So it's like from a scribe. So a description is like, <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, I just thought of this um, the other day and noticed this. I imagine that is kind of roughly the etymology of the word describe. Um, anyway, maybe, um, let me think. Four pages of. Oh yeah, that's kind of interesting. Okay, I'll do that one. Page 19. Um, this is kind of an interesting quote um, talking about scribes and all that kind of stuff. There, this is a quote in the book. <clears throat> there are four ways of making a book. There are some who write down the words of others without adding or changing a thing. And he who does this is called a scribe. So a scribe is just totally like a, a photocopying machine, right? There are those who write down others' words and add something. However, not their own additions. So they're adding someone else's comments. Uh, maybe there's a dictator reading some book out loud and then he's also adding in his own comments. And those scribes are taking it down, but they're not called scribes. If they're taking down someone else's notes as well, they are called compilers. Uh, then there are those who write down both others and their own things, but material of others predominates and their own is added like an annex for clarification. So they're writing down their own stuff, but it's much less in proportion to the someone else's stuff. And so those who do that are called a commentator um, rather, rather than an author. And I'll get to the reason why I mentioned this quote in a second as well. But he who writes both what comes from himself and from others with the materials of others annexed in this case, the material of others is, is much less proportionally than what the person is thinking of themselves. Um, with the material of the others annexed for the purpose of confirming his own thought, ought to be called an author. Um, <laughs> and so when I saw this, when I read this out, I was thinking, okay, when I'm doing my podcast, which one do I, oh, am I going to be? Am I going to be a scribe? Am I going to be a compiler? Am I going to be a commentator? Or am I going to be an author? Um, and that's going to depend on, that's why I, I was veering away from just reading out so much quotes. So if the, um, 
So if the majority of this podcast is from my own mind and with a few little quotes here and there, then I could maybe by this criteria uh, <laughs> uh, call myself an author, uh, the author of this podcast. Yeah, rather than me, if I, like I'm saying, this book is really interesting, but if I was just going to read out even just loads of quotes or even just as i'm saying the whole book is really interesting i left out so much stuff there's really great etymologies i'll just give i'll just give a little hint of some of the things that i left out like for example um so the the latin word to read is legere or legere or something like this and that literally means to taste so it's like when you're reading you're picking up the the words and you're like tasting them in your own mouth. Um, likewise, the German word uh, to read is, is lesson. Lesson, I'm probably saying that wrong, but apparently it refers to something, it refers in some way to the writing system that they had before uh, they came in contact with the phonetic alphabet, which was, um, I think it's called staves, is it? Or, or the runic kind of uh, writing system because they would often do those with just uh, collecting beech sticks and then leaving them down in the right positions and then that would be their message. So the German word for reading is harking back to the, 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 bond, the, the gathering of, of sticks to, in, order to, um, in order to make their runic um, symbols. There was even another one, um, let me think. Uh, I should have put. I should have like made a list of the most interesting notes to that I had to leave out. Maybe one or two more will come to me in a second. But um, yeah, there was just loads of etymologies. There was um, yeah. As I'm saying, the whole book was really interesting. But I couldn't just write say it all out because then I would have just been a scribe, and I wanted to be an author here. So yeah. Um, so did I read out that? Yes, I did. Um, Oh yeah, and the 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 Bible. It's such a huge book um, that only became a manageable. It was always broken up into many different books um, because there's loads of chapters in the Bible. But it was always broken up into many different books, and it wasn't until after the 12th century where there was the oh yeah before um, before just before the paper arrived in Europe. Finally, the Bible was reducible down to one manageable book. And actually, these books they used to have like a buckle on them, and they would they would, they would close them so the buckle so the book doesn't open up, and they had a strap around it, and you could throw that strap over your shoulder, and it was like a bag on your back. The book, anyway. But um, so so if like monks were traveling or something, they would have, they would easily be able to carry this um, this Bible. But anyway, um, t there's a couple of factors that were that made the Bible finally reducible down to a ma one manageable book as opposed to being a big massive collection of books. Um, one was the fact that uh, they started using the, the fetus of an unborn cow to make the parchment. So it was so much thinner than the other parchment, which comes from a, like a sheep or a goat or a cow. I'm not really sure which, maybe all of them. Um, so that was a bit thicker because the animal was bigger. So they started using the, and this parchment from um, an unborn animal was called vellum because it was just so much thinner so that would reduce the thickness of the book um <laughs> how did they how do they like just randomly now after just like there's um 
in the process of making cheese, you like you need this this enzyme from one of the stomachs of a cow, and I think this enzyme is called rennet. So what you gotta do is you gotta you gotta. I'm just talking about how the hell do people discover these things, like. They, a cow has four stomachs, so I'm not sure if the rennet is in all of them or just in one. Anyway, so what you do is you, you butcher a cow, you cut up his stomach, you get this part, you get the part of the stomach where, the, where this rennet enzyme is, and then you, you cut it up into little, uh, little sections or whatever, and then, I, I don't know if you just put that little bit of the skin straight into the milk, and then that curdles the milk, and then you can make cheese, or if you put that into water and let, let the enzyme go out, and then you put, pour the water in, I'm not exactly sure, but... I'm just reminded now of that process of, uh, of, uh, of cheese making, which comes from the discovery of a particular part of the stomach of a cow that has this chemical, this enzyme called rennet, and that's what curdles the cheese. Like, how the, how the hell, <laughs> how are these things discovered? It kind of makes, makes me think of, like, you know, in the Amazon rainforest or something, the way people would use plants medicinally, like, they just did it intuitionally, uh, you know what I mean? They just like, the plants were speaking to them or what? Anyway, that was just a little sidetrack there. But um, yeah, back to the vellum. So the, there was the vellum parchment, much thinner. And then you had, um, yeah, and then you had the reduction in the size of the writing. Maybe they had finer nibs on their on their pens. And coincidentally, the word pen, this is another example of interesting thing that was in the book. Um, the word we have for pen, for writing, actually, the etymology of that is coming from these people in these monasteries and stuff, they used to write with quills. And another word for a quill is a feather, and the Latin for a feather is penna. So this is where our word pen comes from. It comes from what, was, what used to be used for writing, which was a, a quill, which is, in other words, is a feather. So, yeah, th this, this is just like an example of the really interesting things that are in this book. The book is full of these things. Um, but I just couldn't include them all because it would go on for so much longer than it already is going on, you know? It's, it's going on now, what? Oh my god. Let me see, where is my app? Whoops, oh my god, one, one, and a half hour, uh, one hour, 33 minutes. Okay, well, I think I am nearly there. I'll do a, maybe a little bit of a review here at the end now. Um, yeah, so, so yeah, those are little developments that... Oh yeah, so the, the, probably I'm saying the nib maybe got smaller and they were able to write smaller. So that reduced the size, they could get more words on a page. And also, they started doing kind of like abbreviation, like we do, texting, you know, like uh, L, <laughs> LOL and OMG. They would they use a form of abbreviation as well uh, to shorten, to you know, to shorten the words used to communicate a word. So all of these little things were going on in the 12th century. Um, yeah, and this is another really interesting... Um, and actually, the one, like another main um, contribution to the study of medieval uh, manuscripts that is proposed in this book, which was written in the 1980s, the author says that there is nowhere, there is not one article, there is not one mention, there is not one book anywhere in the whole history of the world where um, the argument is made that the, the page layout and page design that was developed as a result of the scholastic approach to manuscripts, which was all about ease of access and indexes and footnotes, and um, because like the footnotes and the, and the marginalia was incorporated um, like the text was, it wasn't ad hoc done, it was, it was done 
in with the same amount of consideration as the original text was. Um, um, what was I saying? Slightly losing the train of thought there now again. Um, so weird. <laughs> okay, so the text was reduced. I was going there. The uh, la la la. Um, I was talking about the reduction of the Bible size. Um, damn it! It's what was I going to look at there? Manageable Bible size. I was talking about. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Sorry. I got it back now. So the the another kind of first that is in this book is the claim. The guy Ivan Ilch makes the claim that by the time the printing press comes around, we all know about the printing press. Um, what's you know the in, the the printing press was so revolutionary because throughout the history of medieval manuscripts the manuscripts were always copied by people listening to someone dictating it or maybe they were able to read from one book beside them and do it themselves but what, what would happen is they would often and you know in every book there probably was errors or, or, or big errors you know what i mean so there was always human error involved much more so in the manuscript culture so when you got a when you got a manuscript claiming to be the same book as someone else has Actually, there could be quite a bit of difference, right? And if your copy is a good few copies removed from the original, there's even more. It's like a Chinese whisper, you know that thing. Different cult countries have different way of way of uh, talking about the Chinese whisper thing. Maybe I don't know. That's that's the, that's the phrase I knew when I was growing up. It means like things get lost in translation, essentially. Uh, things get modified in translation away from the original meaning. So. What happened when the printing press came along was that for the first time, I mean, when a book is published, they, they might publish hundreds of copies of the same book and then that goes out. And then everyone for the first time is more or less sure that they're all reading the exact same thing. And so this is where the metaphor of like, are we on the same page comes from? Because for the first time, everyone literally was looking at the same page. But the claim that this writer Ivan Illich makes is that it was the achievement of the scholastic um, uh, literary scribes who basically developed the page layout. There was nothing wrong with the artistry from the early monastic. You know, that was fantastic. And that, and that was probably incorporated as well into the monastic. But um, the achievement of the, of the scholastic uh, manuscript makers was the page layout. They essentially uh, developed what we know as type, uh, typography. They essentially developed graphic design. Um, and, and, and what this guy, Ivan Illich, is claiming in this book is that nowhere has there been an, an, an acknowledgement that when the printing press finally arrived to Europe, I think it was in the 17th century, was it? Um, 1600 and something, or was it late 1500 and something? Can't remember right now exactly. But anyway, when it, when it arrived, the, the page layout had developed to such... Uh, high refined um, system that that system was directly transcribable into the printing press. So the page that we get in our books now, in our, all of our books now, it's not the monastic manuscript cultures page. The page that we're all used to now is because of the achievements of the 12th century onwards, the 12th and 13th century. So, yeah, that's another quite... Um, so, yeah, when we look at any book, what we're looking at is the achievements of the 12th century. So I just think this is quite interesting. Um, 
Got a little message there. But anyway, yeah, I think I'm just about finished here now. Maybe there's going to be another quote or something that I'm going to end up with. But, um, yeah, uh, let me have just a quick look at these pages. Uh, I think I kind of got most of the things. I know there's going to be so much things I left out, but uh, I think I've done a good lump of a podcast here now. Um, he talks a lot about the bookish text. He talks about the bookish... The bookish text comes into existence in the 12th... Um, in the 12th century and the bookish the bookish text is a book that has in it all these references to other books to other like you know if it's the bible or something there's going to be footnotes at the bottom explaining how this quote here is referring to uh, another quote in a different book or something so this bookish text is a is once again uh, an achievement of the 12th century um, and all books now are bookish texts. And once again, that's all from the 12th century. Um, oopsie, another message there. So, um, yeah, I think I'm nearly finished. I think I'm, yeah, I think I've got a lot. I got all the points more or less out. Um, there's a lot of, oh yeah, there's one really, okay, there's one more and then I'll do the last quote, I think. But when I was reading this book, so this book is all about education, all about learning. It's like, right down my alley as you could say and then oh yes this is actually a really good point so um right so during the early i mentioned this a while ago in this podcast at the start of the middle at the start of the medieval period when the roman empire fell i was talking about the rule books that govern uh, monasteries and stuff like that there was a new one written because the whole situation of society had changed so it was about the mon the monastery's survival um, before in the Roman Empire, the monastery, the church had more of a civic duty. It had more of a kind of engagement with the people. But because the Roman Empire fell apart and society fell apart, so society basically fell apart and there was a lot less um, yeah, community going on. So a, a monastery was all about its own survival for the sake of the word of God, right? For the keeping of God. It's like, you know, the monks in on, on uh, Skellig Michael, you know, they just... <laughs> abandoned the world just in dire hope of uh of trying to keep um christianity alive even though it was totally bleak there for many centuries you know skellig michael is this little island off the coast of ireland and it's where monks went um uh, because the island looked completely uninhabitable completely almost uh like you couldn't even dock at it with a ship so they went there because the vikings were raiding and so they assumed that when the Vikings would sail past, if they did sail past this big island, it's not even that big, actually. It's in Star Wars, you know. But uh, anyway, Luke Skywalker is there. It's, that's a great symbolism within that film. Talking about Star Wars again. <laughs> I like other films, too. But anyway. Um, uh, so, yeah, the monks assumed that if the Vikings passed this island, the, the Vikings would just not even think that it's possible for anyone to live there. Uh, but yet there was... Irish monks living there for generations um, because it looked so inhospitable. So that was kind of like, you know, the early Dark Ages was like a real desperate period. It was just about survival. So what I'm saying is this this guy, uh, Benedict, uh, the rule of Benedict, kind of replaced the rule of Augustine for the order, for the organization of these monasteries and churches because the whole society had fallen apart. So it was all about the the monk the individual monk's pursuit of God he had no duty outside of the monastery it was just about look down at the page and read and study and take care of yourself but then as I was saying as there was a little renaissance in the age of Charlemagne he brought Alcuin of York who I believe was educated in 
by Irish monks. I'm not so sure about that. Anyway, Alcuin came, he was a great scholar um, in England, and he came to the he came to Charlemagne and he kind of helped develop Europe uh, a bit with by I think he probably founded some school or something or a monastery, you know. So bit by bit, Europe was coming out of the Dark Ages a little bit. And by the 12th century, um, society was slightly more developed. So it was time to do away with the old uh, rule of Benedict, uh, which was all just about monks and themselves. And, and it was time to revive. I think it was only the century before Hugh was alive that the um, rule of Augustine came back out as a way of governing or a way of managing a, a monastery because society was becoming a bit more developed. So it was they, they were then able to go back and use um, Augustine's rule because Augustine's rule was much more of a, of, of a participatory uh, way of, of uh, organizing a monastery. Uh, it had much more of a participatory ethos with the community. Um, so Hugh talks a lot about how um, the monks should not just be concerned with themselves and their own pursuit of God, but they should become like the rule of Benedict was a few centuries before. But um, these monks should also be teachers. They have now a civic duty to go out and to educate people. Um, this is one point that I, I almost forgot. But um, let me see. What else do I need to say about that? Um... That was the rule of Saint Augustine, um, yeah, because the, because the rule of Saint Augustine came from yeah Roman times when society was functioning and uh, yeah so then in the twelfth century when um, society was getting back to a bit of a better place it was time to bring back out this more civic uh, role for the monastery and uh, oh yes and here's the thing I wanted to say and this was really another amazing coincidence for me and appropriate find perfect timing find for another quote for this podcast he was talking about um when these monks go out and trying to educate people like he talks about that those monks should be aware that a person's economic background is going to affect how uh how likely they are to study or not to study and I mean, I have the quote here somewhere now, but maybe I can do it without even looking at the quote. But um, well, a bit thirsty here now. So um, he he talks about no being aware of the dif of the difficulty. If you're coming from a of more of a difficult, less well off economic background, it's going to be possibly probably more difficult for you. But he has this beautiful quote where he says. But if, but if someone is, if you are trying to educate someone or get someone interested in education and educating themselves and becoming readers for the betterment of themselves, he talks about how, how much more glorious it is when someone from a more difficult, challenging background actually takes to learning and starts developing themselves by reading excellent books and stuff. He talks about how much more glorious it is um, when someone like that as opposed to someone who's well off uh, and has much more of a stable, comfortable, slightly more comfortable situation, economic background, how much more glorious it is for the person who has the difficult background to start learning than when someone who is has a slightly more comfortable back background and yet they're not even trying to learn. Um, that was just a really beautiful quote. And there was a there was a line as well that indicated that this guy, Hugh of St. Victor, Oh yeah, and coincidentally, he was a part. He was supposedly 
from Flanders originally. And then he went to Germany and some, I think his father or something was working in a monastery in Germany. And then eventually he went to Paris uh, where he settled in a monastery that was working under the rule of St. Augustine. And anyway, um, whoops, train of thought there now again. Um, I was saying he was from Flanders and I was saying he moved to Paris and... Oh yeah, so there was a quote in this book that indicated that this guy, Hugh, really, really, really emphasized the need to... to uh, he formulated the need for a universal education. And so that makes him one of the earliest real democratizers of education and information. So when I read that, I was like, wow, that's so cool. That's like, uh, that's once again, that's uh, perfectly in tune with my motivations for this whole podcast anyway. And it was just coincidentally another great find um, during the research of this podcast. Like, as, as I was saying at the start, those two quotes about, um, first of all, the uh, talk to someone to clarify your ideas. And then the other quote about democracy by Declan Kybert about democracy is the art of learning and teaching, learning from and teaching other people uh, because it's all participatory. Um, yeah, so I think I've really got most of the things out. There's probably going to be things... I, I didn't even mention the trivium, the quadrivium that much. I'll just quickly do it now. The, the trivium is the art of letters, because it's logic, rhetoric, and grammar. Um, rhetoric is the art of persuasion. Grammar is the art of interpretation. It's not just like grammar, how sentences... It's not like syntax and all that kind of stuff. It's actually... It incorporates interpretation too. And then logic is the art of kind of like reasoning. And then the trivium <coughs> is the the art of numbers. So, and first of all, actually, originally in the medieval period, um, what we know now as a, as a bachelor's degree is um, was originally when you had studied the trivium. If you had studied the trivium and you understood the trivium, you, you, you know, you were very competent in the trivium, in the ways of the trivium, you had a bachelor's degree. So if someone goes to college now, they, their first degree in college is a bachelor's degree, but we, it's not really anything got to do with the original trivium. And then back in the day, in the medieval period, if you went to college and you, you did your bachelor's and then you continued on to, uh, and you did the, the quadrivium, which is the study of uh, numbers. So it's arithmetic, which is mathematics. It's like mathematics. And then mathematics in space is geometry, Math mathematics in time is music, and then mathematics in space and time is astronomy. So that was what the quadrivium is. So back in the day, if you studied the, the, the trivium, you got your bachelor's, then you could proceed on to doing the quadrivium. And, and back in the day, the quadrivium gave you your master's. So that's what a master's was back in the day. Anyway, um... So yeah, like Hugh was just talking about those kind of things in his book at the start. I just see them here. Um, yeah, there was one other really interesting thing, the art of memory. The art of memory, he talks about early in this book, uh, Ivan Illich talks about... Oh, is there someone going to come in here now? Uh-oh, I've, I've got someone coming in here now. I'm just, I'm just about finished. I'm just about finished. Um, I'm just going to finish up this... I'll just be like one minute talking to myself here. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's absolutely perfect timing because, um, yeah. Oh, yeah, the art of mem memory. This was this crazy, um, the students in the monasteries, 
they were they were told they were told to like classify and categorize everything in an imaginary um cathedral in their mind and they would categorize all of the different subjects that they come across and they would put them in their mental map in their mind like if it's about like you know i don't know particular saints all the saints go in this treasure chest in this particular room in this imaginary cathedral in their head this was a big um uh what's the word i can't even pronounce it mnemonic way of uh trying to remember things um johnny mnemonic mnemonic I don't know how to pronounce that word. Anyway, um, yeah, that was just um, the art of memory. I mean, we don't think of memory as being an art at all, but uh, back in the day, people used to apparently be able to main, rest, uh, what's the word, uh, retain lots of information and kind of just bring it back out, uh, uh, like, you know, uh, whenever they wanted because they would, they would know what the subject is and they would know where they store that subject in their mind. Anyway, that's just a, another kind of example of the kind of things that I have to leave out. Um, um, and yeah, I think that's more or less it. Um, so yeah, I think I think I think I'm good to end it just there now because there was one quote here at the end about Ivan Illich saying that he is slightly fearful that um, the idea of a book has been reduced to being a mere metaphor pointing towards information. Um, um and he kind of says what is it what does he say ever fewer people come to the book as a harbor of meaning no doubt for some it still leads to wonder and joy puzzlement and bitter regret but for me i fear its legitimacy consists in being little more than a metaphor pointing towards information um yeah so i think he's just talking about the need for uh yeah uh to keep books alive i guess uh, because of how important they are in terms of the formation of a person to be able to participate democratically as a citizen in society. So yeah, I think I can leave it there now. Wow, nearly two hours. But anyway, yeah. Probably left out a lot of things, probably going to be kicking myself when I look back at the notes, but there we go. Okay, hope you enjoyed it. <laughs>